0: last week's nato summit in lithuania was a mixed bag of wins and losses the president of turkey finally agreed to sweden's membership in nato and more than 4,000 pages of military plans for the defense of nato countries were approved
1: agreed that uh, uh, ukraine's future is in
0: uh, nato on the flip side ukraine's hopes for nato membership were not fulfilled causing frustration and a sense of unfulfilled commitments from the United States and the United Kingdom. This is Global Insights by Network 2020. Today, we're looking back at a conversation we recorded in April last year exploring the purpose of NATO amidst the invasion of Ukraine and beyond.
2: Jamie, that was the most comprehensive history of NATO in five minutes that I've ever heard. NATO us, if you like, given
3: up the fiction that this is a serious strategy and he's going back to a more Cold War posture, that the best reinforcements are the guys who are already there.
0: Will this unity last? What challenges does NATO face? And does the alliance need to evolve in order to meet what it believes is its 21st century purpose. Joining us today are three distinguished guests. Dr. Jamie Shea is the visiting professor of the Strategy and Security Institute, University of Exeter, United Kingdom. And member of the group of strategic advisors of the NATO Special Operations Forces Command at Shape in Belgium. Prior to joining the University of Exeter, he was an international public servant and a member of the international staff of NATO for 38 years. Rajan Menon holds the Anne and Bernard Spitzer Chair in Political Science at the City University of New York and is a senior research scholar at the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University and a global ethics fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs. Rachel Rizzo is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Europe Center, focusing on European security, NATO, and the transatlantic relationship. Moderating the discussion is Joanna Gwawczewski.
1: So let me first begin uh, with a question to both Jamie and Rachel. It would be useful to start the discussion with a very brief history of NATO before the invasion of Ukraine. What have been some major inflection points for the alliance since its founding in 1949? So let me begin with you, Jamie.
3: Well, John. First of all, good afternoon uh, to you, and many thanks uh, to Network Twenty Twenty for the and Courtney as well, and Brian uh, for the kind invitation to participate today. Truly uh, honoured. Well, NATO was founded in nineteen forty nine, which means that it's the longest uh, uh, military alliance uh, since the Athenian League against Sparta in the decades before the birth of uh, Christ. So it gives you a sort of sense of perspective. It's only the second military alliance that the United States at that time had concluded in its history. Uh, The first, of course, went back uh, to the American War of Independence, uh, directed against my country, quite appropriately at the time, uh, Great Britain. Um, So as you can imagine, with an alliance that's gone on for the best part of eight decades already, there have been lots of twists and turns first period that takes us from 1949 right the way through to the end of the Cold War is characterized, of course, by collective defense, the very thing that NATO is now returning to because of uh, Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine. Um, The founding father of uh, the alliance was Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union. And NATO's purpose was really to Uh, establish an effective defence and deterrence and and wait for something to happen. Um, And uh, it took a long time before that something did happen, as George Kennan, in his famous uh, containment doctrine, doctrine had predicted that it would. 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. Um, NATO went through a very uh, temporary existential crisis because, of course, the adversary, the Soviet Union, its alliance, the Warsaw Pact, uh, all disappeared. Uh, NATO was the victim of what some experts called catastrophic success. But but the alliance is very uh, adaptable. Uh, and One of the reasons I think why its member states did not want to give it up was because, number one, the American Security Guarantee, which was unique, and a fear that if you sort of sent the Americans back home, they might never come back again, or uh, they would come late to the battle, as in World War I and World War II, so keep that locked in. And secondly, a sense, you know, particularly if you look at Germany. Um, that uh, NATO had sort of collectivised defence; it had taken it away from European countries that hadn't been very good at handling it in their history, uh, and like like a collective insurance policy, it made it something that everybody does together. So uh, I, I think you know, the the sort of the weight of tradition kept NATO going. But of course, in the 90s, it had a glorious time because uh, it was able to go on the political offensive with no great adversary blocking it any longer. Those were those were the years of NATO enlargement of NATO partnerships, NATO created what one of my German academic friends calls a partnership industry, reaching out to about 45 countries in the world, including Australia, Japan, New Zealand, still there today to form security partnerships It enlarged so that today, Half of its membership has joined since the end uh, of the uh, Cold War. And in, with Finland and Sweden waiting in the wings, that could be over half <laughs> uh, very soon. We'll have to wait and see what happens there. It was also a time when NATO uh, discovered that its military instruments, no longer really needed for collective defence, were quite useful in dealing with out-of-area conflicts, You know, notably in the former Yugoslavia, of course, from the mid-1990s onwards. And then that took us to Afghanistan. That took us to Libya. in in 2011 uh, to piracy in the Gulf of Aden. Uh, Admittedly, as those missions went on, they became, as the farther they went from Europe, the less likely to produce the successes that people had hoped for. Uh, And Afghanistan is still something where clearly NATO needs to learn some hard lessons. But nonetheless, uh, for a long time, NATO was more visible doing things outside its treaty area than maybe uh, inside. But of course, in 2014, when uh, Russia uh, annexed uh, Crimea and sent its troops into Ukraine, into The Donbass. The pendulum swung back, back even then, uh, to putting an emphasis back on collective defence. Not that NATO believed that we would be in the situation with Russia that we're in today, but it clearly showed that Russia uh, was not willing to abide by international law. Uh, It clearly brought Russian forces into closer proximity to NATO states. It made Eastern European allies, given their history, quite So a lot of what NATO is doing today, very briefly and only soon, is not necessarily a departure from what NATO has been doing for the last eight years, it was already going back to collective defence after 2014, already realising that it couldn't leave a military vacuum uh, on half of its territory in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, NATO membership doesn't, is not just being part of a club, it also means NATO's collective arrangements to actually be able to defend members. So troops going east, Uh, uh, To the Baltic states, to Poland, ships going to the Black Sea were already a feature of the NATO scene before uh, Russia uh, invaded Ukraine full scale. But of course, uh, the events since February have been a massive shock for all allies. I spoke of Finland and Sweden. Their uh, approach to NATO is hardly conceivable given their previous non alignment status without that big shock. Uh, And NATO, of course, today faces some tough challenges. Yes, on the one hand, it's unity, fear brings everybody together, we know that very well. But, but on the other hand, the, the prospect of a potential war against Russia, a nuclear war uh, is not one that many NATO ambassadors would welcome. Uh, the financial demands on remilitarization are going to be major. The issue of if you have Finland and Sweden coming in, you double you double the number of kilometers along the Russian border that you have to start thinking about defending. Um, And of course, you have with Ukraine a difficult decision about how many of your weapons you keep for yourself, for your own defense, on how many of those weapons do you give free to the Ukrainians, because in a way, they are now the first line of defense of NATO itself. So, yes, uh, unity, but uh, nothing in life ever comes without a major downside as well.
1: Thank you so much. That was very, very comprehensive, um, Rachel. What uh, what significant points have you seen with NATO? How it's evolved over time? Uh,
2: thanks so much, Joanna and Jamie. That was the most comprehensive history of NATO in five minutes that I've ever heard. That was really impressive. I hope to be able to do that one day. Um, but I think there are a couple things here that Jamie sort of mentioned that I'd like to pull on a little bit that sort of highlight. Where we are today and how we got to where we are today. The first is right after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and how that has affected and laid the groundwork for the US presence in Europe today and the US relationship with European security today. You know, I think there was a real worry after the dissolution of the Soviet Union that NATO's main adversary no longer existed. So what would NATO do going forward? What was its purpose? What was its role in in the global political climate? And I think for the United States, there was a real worry that if we allowed the Europeans to really build their own defense capabilities that might render NATO not necessarily irrelevant, but maybe not as effective as it once was, and in turn may push the United States out of uh, the European continent. So there's been a lot of these discussions over the last couple of decades, actually, about the Europeans needing to spend more on defense, needing to take more responsibility for their own security. But I think it's important to go back to how we got here and how, how these conversations at NATO have evolved throughout the years. I think it really did start in, in the early 90s. Um, I think there was also an important moment that everyone is, I think, talking about nowadays regarding NATO enlargement. Um, And there's a really interesting foreign affairs poll that came out today, Rajan, I think you were on it too, about whether or not NATO enlargement um, after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union was a mistake. So I would encourage everyone to go take a look at that on on, on foreign affairs. Um, But a lot of the discussion today, I think centers around whether or not Ukraine and Georgia to a certain extent should have, or will at some point join NATO. Now we can go into many different rabbit holes, but I think that there was an important moment in 2008 discussing NATO enlargement at the Bucharest summit, where there was a question about whether or not uh, Ukraine and Georgia would eventually join the Alliance. And I think we sort of gave them the worst end of the stick, which is there was a promise, a, Uh, uh, sort of a promise that was made that they would eventually join, but there was never really a timeline given. And so these two countries have been sort of in between two worlds for uh, 13 years now, being super close partners of NATO, but not being protected by NATO's Article 5. And at the same time, you know, Russia has used that as part of the reason um, for for its aggression towards both of these countries. I wouldn't say that NATO membership is the main character in this story, but it is a supporting actor, right? That's sort of, I think, the way to look at it. So I think Jamie laid out really Im- Im- important, um, important points, but there's just those two uh, items that I-, I might wanna add.
1: Right, well, thank you so much. And then if I can turn to you, Rajan, um, how has Russia viewed this evolution? Of NATO.
4: First of all, Joanna, thank you to you and to Courtney and to Brian for inviting me back. You invited me last in 2006 and I was wondering when the phone might ring again, if ever. Uh, it's, it's quite clear. The one thing that the critics of NATO and the champions of NATO expansion can agree on is that no leader sitting in Moscow since 1990 when NATO expansion became a possibility, theoretically, liked it. Gorbachev did not, and he tried to stop it in many ways. First, by proposing that NATO and its counterpart, the Warsaw Pact, be liquidated in favor of a security arrangement from the Urals to the Atlantic, Euro-Atlantic security that would include Russia. Thereafter, he proposed a neutral Germany and failing that, he proposed that NATO not advance into what was then the GDR, what is now the East, what is now Eastern Germany. He even proposed that perhaps the Soviet Union should be a member of NATO. So there's no question that he did not like it, and he has been a critic of it ever since. The documentary evidence about Yeltsin's position is even more overwhelming based on declassified documents that everyone can see. Repeatedly, he told Clinton two things, that NATO expansion would bring to the foreign Russia forces that the US, which professed to care about democratization in East Central Europe and Russia, would not like. And second, that no Russian, no matter his or her leanings, left, right, center, would be quite able to understand why an archetype of the Cold War, NATO, would be moving eastward at the very same time that the West was telling Russia that the Cold War is over, Russia's a democracy, and Russia is a partner. Of course, Yeltsin was too weak to do anything about it, and I might add half the time drunk. It didn't help. Come the 2000s, you have a confluence of factors that change the game. A younger, more vigorous leader in the persona of Vladimir Putin comes to power. Oil prices soar between 2000 and 2008. The Russian army is rebuilt. And as they say in Russian, the power vertical, the central government's authority is restored. And a pushback comes. I think the key turning point was 2008 of the Bucharest summit, where NATO made the decision to admit Ukraine and Georgia, and thereafter kept waiting for 22 years, a point that's already been referred to. So the point to make is that however much The Ukraine war has to do with Vladimir Putin, and I don't condone it in any way, although I've been a critic of NATO expansion from the day it was a mere glimmer in anyone's eye in Washington. That this is something peculiar to Putin is completely wrong. Uh, Ambassador uh, William Burns, now the head of the CIA, wrote a cable in 2008 in which he wrote to the State Department saying, I have talked to Russians of all stripes, of all sorts, To a man, to a woman, they are opposed to NATO expansion. You should know the depth of the opposition here. So on this, there's absolutely no question. The question of whether NATO should have been expanded, nevertheless, is another issue.
0: As a non-profit organization, Network 2020 relies on the support of listeners like you. If you're a fan of global insights, we humbly ask you to consider making a donation by visiting network2020.org. From all of us, thank you.
1: And then, if I can turn to uh, Rachel and Jamie, what was, we've already talked about how uh, NATO's return to its collective defense orientation. But what was it about this crisis in Ukraine that motivated NATO to act so decisively and in unity? And how likely is this determination to last? So if I could start with you, Rachel. Sure. Well,
2: well, I first think that the fact that war has returned to the European continent is a shock to anyone, um, and especially that this isn't the sort of hybrid kind of warfare that we've seen Russia um, Russia engage on over the last you know, 10, 12, 15 years. This is a more conventional looking war. And I think that for many people, this idea that that would happen on the European continent again, um, many thought that that wasn't ever going to be the case. And so I think there's a bit of shock there, right? Um, But I think NATO's response to this crisis actually was born out of the illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014, which has really set NATO up to respond decisively to this invasion. And If you look at NATO's response to 2014, um, they created Enhanced Forward Presence, which is a set of multinational battalions that are located in the Baltics and Poland, and there's discussions happening right now about adding more of those multinational battalions to countries like Slovakia, um, Hungary, and potentially others. Um, They created the Rapid Action Plan, um, which was agreed to at the Wales Summit, which basically launched the most significant reinforcement of NATO's collective defense since the end of the Cold War. Um, It tripled the size of the NATO response force. And so this this is all sort of setting the stage, I think, to responding to Russia's increased aggression over uh, the last five or six years. Um, And so NATO's response and its ability to respond quickly to what has happened is partially because many of the elements that are necessary for a quick response have already been in place since 2014. So the very high readiness joint task force, for example, which is a 5,000 strong spearhead force of the NATO response force um, can deploy, is supposed to be able to deploy anywhere in in just a matter matter of days. um, And that, A few weeks after, maybe just a couple weeks after Russia's invasion, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg announced the deployment of elements of the NATO response force for the first time in a collective defense role in in NATO's history. So these are all very significant um, occurrences that have, I think, shown that NATO can respond quickly if necessary. But I think when it comes to the response to Ukraine, it's important to denote between how NATO responds as an alliance and the unity that we've seen and how bilaterally countries are supporting Ukraine. It's much different for NATO, a, collect, uh, a consensus-based organization to make a decision with all 30 allies. That's a very different story than it is thinking about how bilateral countries um, are, are supporting Ukraine one on one, which I think is probably more substantive. So while NATO, I think, has shown unity and solidarity in 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 this crisis, the really meaningful occurrences have happened on a bilateral
1: basis. Thank you, Rachel. That's a very important distinction. Thank you. Um, Jamie, so why do you think um, in NATO has been so determined with this particular you know Russian action in Ukraine? Well,
3: I have to return the compliment to Rachel this time around because she has given, I think, a very comprehensive answer, which I would have striven uh, had you turned to me first, Joanna, to give myself. Uh, But you've asked me to say a few things. I'll try to add a few extra points. I think, first of all, uh, Rachel is right. Obviously, um, the enormity of the Russian invasion of Ukraine was bound to sort of uh, oblige NATO to revise its arrangements for collective defence in Europe. Um, After 2014, NATO played typical of alliances, a delicate balancing act. On the one hand, wanting to put uh, multinational uh, battalions, uh, as Rachel pointed out, and forces uh, into Central and Eastern Europe to fill that vacuum that I referred to earlier. But without provoking Russia and, frankly, without parking a lot of very expensive forces full time in Central and Eastern Europe, which might be needed, for example, from a US perspective in the Middle East, from a European perspective in Mali or the Central African Republic, um, or um, obviously from an American perspective, also in the uh, Indo-Pacific region. So it was an attempt to sort of have a strategy which was based on a thin sort of blue line, uh, a tripwire of NATO forces, uh, which would be multinational and therefore uh, a deterrent. But they wouldn't have a war fighting capacity. So uh, if Russia did attack, the, the whole trick would be to get reinforcements across Europe really quickly. Um, this became known as military mobility in the NATO jargon. And NATO set up a command in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, uh, for the Atlantic sea lanes of communication. It set up a reinforcement command, a rear uh, support command at Ulm in Germany. Uh, And he conducted several exercises to make sure that, you know, if the call came, it could quickly get those troops back across the Atlantic or from Western Europe into Eastern Europe. But it was always, to my mind, a very risky strategy because it relied upon good intelligence, early decision making the forces being available, uh, nothing going wrong with roads or railways or ports or infrastructure. And I think, you know, what's happened since uh, uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine last February is NATO has, if you like, given up the fiction that this is a serious strategy and is going back to a more Cold War posture that the best reinforcements are the guys who are already there, uh, permanently deployed with all of their equipment on the front line, ready to fight uh, and to prevail uh, on day uh, one. Although, although, Oh, I noted from testimony that was given a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, by the Secretary of Defense and the chair, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs in Washington, that the United States still is a bit hesitant about this notion of permanent deployment, uh, it would like permanent bases uh, in Central uh, send- and Eastern Europe paid for by the Europeans into and into an out of which it can rotate its troops. But anyway, first part of the answer, uh, I agree with Rachel, is that you know, given that NATO's former, foremost task of is collective defence, it was inevitable that it would have to uh, you know, up its game and revise its strategy and build up its forces in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, both for deterrence and because deterrence now means uh, war fighting. It means uh, winning wars and no longer simply hoping to uh, prevent them, at least for the time being, because whatever the outcome of the Ukrainian conflict, given where Russia is today, has also militarily speaking, taken over Belarus, whatever the outcome, we're likely to see more sizable uh, numbers of Russian forces uh, parked permanently closer to NATO territory um, um, than we had uh, before. But the interesting uh, point is is the other part of your question, of course, why help to uh, Ukraine? Well, here I, I put it all down to leadership. I mean, the funny thing about NATO's history over since the end of the Cold War is that although NATO says we only defend ourselves, our mission is only to defend our own member states. You know, you've heard this from Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, you know, only countries that have the Article Five security guarantee are going to be defended. This isn't true, uh, as I know from my time as NATO, uh, NATO official. We defend, we intervened uh, on behalf of. The Bosnian Muslims. We intervened on behalf of the Kosovar uh, uh, Muslim community in 1999. We intervened on behalf of the Afghans, on behalf of the besieged population of Benghazi in 2011, as part of you know, the, if you like, emerging uh, responsibility to protect doctrine. Now, I'm not going to argue that all of these were particularly successful, and they certainly got us into trouble with the Russians uh, because uh, coming back to what Tajan was saying a moment ago, uh, in my experience of negotiating with the Russians, they were even more upset about some of these interventions by NATO than they were about uh, NATO enlargement uh, at at the time. So NATO, in fact, has a kind of habit uh, where the leadership is there, where the mood is right uh, of intervening on behalf of non-members as well. In the case of Ukraine, the Biden administration, I think, has made all of the difference. You know, had Biden sort of been Trump and sat on the fence, you have to ask yourself the question, um, you know, Pache Boris Johnson and Pache some of the Central and Eastern European leaders, whether within Europe itself, the will, you know, think of Germany, would have been there without the leadership of the United States pulling the coalition together uh, to provide that firm response. So NATO doesn't give itself a mandate. It depends upon, you know, the leadership is there. And if it doesn't come from Washington, it doesn't really come very much uh, from Europe, at least not so far. The second thing is that uh, the enlargement of NATO could have something to do with this, because you've seen the refugees being overwhelmingly welcomed in Poland, in the Baltic states, in Eastern Europe, in Slovakia, even in Hungary. Uh, You've seen the bulk of the heavy military equipment, the T-72s, the S-300s, being sent by the Czech Republic and Slovakia. You've seen the training taking place in Poland. Uh, You've seen the today uh, the polish prime minister offer uh, 10000 hospital beds to treat wounded ukrainian soldiers it's uh, to my mind, you know, the, the fact that NATO now has all of these Eastern European members who identify overwhelmingly with the Ukrainians has also had something politically, as well as the leadership of the United States, uh, of you know, maybe having a firmer reaction. I agree with Rachel, not by NATO, the organisation, although it does help Ukraine in certain areas, like cyber defence, for, ex- for instance, but by the uh, NATO allies. But even if NATO itself is not, if you like, the, uh, the weapons procurement agency, uh, all of these NATO meetings that have been taking place have served, nonetheless, uh, to coordinate uh, 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 as a clearinghouse the weapons that are being uh, sent. So, to some degree, I think uh, it's all down to political
2: leadership.
1: Right. thank you so much. And then, Rajan, if you could, if you could describe, do you think Putin was surprised by NATO's strong response to their action in Ukraine, and and how do you think? Um, How do you think he's going to address uh, opposing that unity? How is he potentially going to try to undermine that unity if he can?
4: Uh, Joanna, if I might just take a slight detour to to comment on something that's been raised here. I think it's very important to make a distinction between NATO's out-of-area operations. As Senator Richard Lugar said, if NATO doesn't go out of area, go out of business. So there's Afghanistan and Libya, both which turned out to be disasters and then the Balkans, but NATO's commitment to defend in Europe a country applies only in the case of members that are covered by Article 5. So notice that in Ukraine, President Biden has gone as far as he can, but he's made it clear that no Americans will fight in Ukraine. No other member of NATO has volunteered. When the Ukrainians said, we are prepared to entertain neutrality if their external guarantors and they had a very high bar that within three days, if necessary, there would be armed intervention. Not a single member of NATO, despite all of the talk about the violation of international law, has come forward. Article 5 itself is misleading, by the way. If you read the five print, the fine print, it is not something that goes on like a flick of a button. It actually gives members much more latitude should they choose to do it. And that's important because not long ago, there was a poll taken in which some NATO members opined that they might not come to the aid of a fellow NATO member who was attacked. That's another story. Now, how will Putin, uh, has Putin been surprised? Yes, I think this war has been, even if he manages to eke out a military victory, a strategic disaster in, 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 in across the board. But here's what I think he will do. Um, he will have to first make the Russian economy stand up again because of the damage the sanctions have done. He will then, I think, beef up forces on the Swedish and uh, uh, facing Sweden and Finland, if they do choose to join. He will bring Belarus more under its shadow, uh, Russia's shadow, and possibly station troops there permanently. For all practical purposes, Belarus has been reduced under Lukashenko to an adjunct of the Soviet Union, and it will certainly uh, station more missiles and nuclear weapons in the Kaliningrad uh, salient. Essentially, this war has amounted to a burning of the bridges between Russia and the United States. And so long as Mr. Putin is in power, I cannot see any movement on the diplomatic front, on the arms control front, on the trade front, because this is a definitive parting of the ways, it seems to me. But to answer your question, was Putin surprised? Yes, I think he's also been surprised by the course of the war. I think he expected a much quicker victory and you didn't anticipate what has been, by and large, a disastrous performance by the Russian military.
1: Thank you so much. Um, so now we have just a, you know, two or three minutes left. And I, I wanted to end with one final question. You know, we've been discussing NATO, its future. Um, and so my question to each of you is, has NATO found its purpose for the 21st century? Or do you think it's still looking? So I hate to put you first on the spot, Rachel, but <laughs> what do you think?
2: Well, I think that if there's one thing that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has done is focus the alliance in a way that it has not been focused for years. And I think that's a good thing. I think in the um, aftermath of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, there was no no question that the alliance would be trying to figure out what its role would be um, both within the European continent and out of area operations. And I think that if if there's one, um, there's nothing positive that has come out of this, but I do think that NATO has been focused and it has woken up Europe in a way that it needed to be woken up. The question now is if it can continue and how long this momentum lasts for. I also think there's a major question of how the alliance is going to approach China. There was a lot of discussions, I think, before the The Russian invasion of uh, this new strategic concept in being released in June and talking about how the alliance would start to think about China. And, you know, i I have a really hard time thinking that NATO's most meaningful role is going to be in the Indo-Pacific region. And I understand why we have to talk about China's inroads to Europe. And how NATO might respond to that. But I really do think that this is a time for NATO to go back to its roots and focus on Russia and allow the United States to focus uh, more heavily on the Indo-Pacific region.
1: Great. Thank you. Rajan? If the
4: conclusion drawn from the Ukraine war is that Russia is a big threat, then NATO has found its purpose. If the conclusion is that it's not merely the threat If we thought it was, then it's a different story. But I expect the lesson to be drawn is that Russia is a substantial threat. But that doesn't solve the problem of how you deal with the Russian threat. What ought to be the internal allocation of resources? What should be the European share? Should it change in any substantial way? Should it go beyond burden sharing to something approaching strategic autonomy within NATO? And then there's a question of how do you deal with Russia after the war? Because it is too great a country, and by great I mean large in size and nuclear power, to be dealt with by just sending it out to the periphery. But what is the relationship with Russia in the years ahead? Are there common interests that we pursue not because we want to do President Putin a favor, favor, but because on strategic arms control or the revival of some version of the INF Treaty, which it was a shame, I think, to tear up? Uh, do we have any dealings with Russia or do we simply wait Putin out and say no dealings with Russia until he's around? That, that remains to be seen. I don't think there's complete identity within NATO on that.
1: Right. Thank you so much. And Jamie? Well, uh,
3: again, many good points have been made. My, 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 my sense is that, yes, obviously, uh, the big shock of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the fact that Putin has turned to Russia, whether we like it or not, into a more total state, at least for the time being, will mean that NATO will go back to its original purpose. But as I've said, there will be challenges that will test NATO along the way. I agree, we need a much greater role of the Europeans. The Europeans, at least uh, from a financial point of view, seem willing to take that on. But in terms of strategic culture, in terms of organisation, they need to show that they are able to do it effectively. Um, the other thing, uh, however, is that uh, other challenges challenges don't go away simply because Mr Putin invades Ukraine. We have the problems of jihadism uh, emerging now powerfully in many parts of Africa. 80% of terrorist attacks now occur in sub-Saharan Africa. We have the issue of climate change, which NATO has recently embraced. We have the whole issues of societal security, uh, cyber attacks, hybrid warfare. Uh, we have militarization in space, in ballistic missiles, in new technologies proceeding at pace. So I would hope that, you know, rather like Lyndon Johnson, who said that a good politician should be able to walk, well, I think he said something else, and chew gum at the same time. You know, I don't think that NATO can go back simply to being a one-issue organization like it was during the Cold War. What we've seen Final point, uh, since um, uh, the advent of the Ukraine conflict is the United States and Europeans working together really as a team, not just in NATO, also, you know, on the Trade and Technology Council between the EU and the US on a variety of different issues. And uh, I would hope that, you know, even though NATO won't uh, technically take on every security threat in the world, it has to have priorities. Nonetheless, the fact that you've got the 30 transatlantic democracies and all of their partners. Australia, Japan, New Zealand, who turned up at the last NATO foreign minister's meeting a couple of days ago, that this network, this diplomatic security network that NATO represents today can be used also to keep an eye on climate change, on the Sahel, on the Middle East, uh, on the militarisation of space, on the future of the nuclear proliferation treaty and a lot of these other issues. So that there will be two NATOs, if you like, an, an everyday NATO. Yes, it's all about Russia for the time being, but a larger sort of NATO, which would help to sort of coordinate that transatlantic security policy. So because we do now, unfortunately, whether you like it or not, Joanna, live in a world where 70% of the global population today live in autocracies. That number is going up every year. The number of living democracies is going down. Russia and China are coming closer together. So dealing with them separately makes less and less sense. And we've got to sort of, you know, keep that in mind and get NATO involved. think in that debate as well. Finally, I agree with Rajan, the Putin regime is not Russia any more than the Bolsheviks were Russia, or the Tsar was Russia, or or any other uh, Russian leader encapsulated the whole country. I think it's right that NATO should not cancel the NATO-Russia Founding Act or the NATO-Russia Council, keep them in suspension, and always keep the hand of cooperation open to a future Russia. Russia collapsed twice in the 20th century. The Putin regime hopefully will collapse sometime in the 21st century, and we'll go back to a new opportunity to build a better relationship with Russia. the previous ones, unfortunately, didn't work out, but as we say in London, third time lucky.
1: <laughs> great, great. Thank you so much. That's a great point to uh, end this discussion. I want to thank our panelists so much for a very comprehensive, fascinating discussion. And uh, over to you, Courtney. All right. Thank you all. Thank you, Joanna, for moderating. Uh, Roger Rachel, Jamie, this was fantastic. I really appreciate it.
0: We can't thank you enough for being a part of this episode of Global Insights. To dive deeper into the world of insightful analysis, and to learn more about how you can join our community, make sure to visit us at Network2020.org.